What we find when we measure energy expenditure across different populations, different lifestyles, is that people who are very active burn the same number of calories every day as people who are not very active. And so there doesn't seem to be any relationship at all between how active a person is and how many calories they burn every day. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back to Human OS Radio. My name is Greg Potter and I'm hosting the show today once again. Joining me for this episode is Herman Ponser, Associate Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University. Professor Ponser's research focuses on the physiology of humans and apes and aims to understand how ecology, lifestyle, diet and evolutionary history affect metabolism and health. His work also explores how ecology and evolution have influenced physical activity and the musculoskeletal system. Professor Ponser has done some fascinating studies of small-scale societies, including hunter-gatherers and subsistence farmers. Herman, welcome to Human OS Radio. Uh, thanks for having me on. Lovely to be here. I'm keen to get straight to your constrained total energy expenditure model. Can you briefly describe the main premises of energy constraints, mentioning its evolutionary bases and the concept of energy compensation? Yeah, sure. So let's start with what everybody learns in school or what we all assume to be true, which is a straightforward way of thinking about how energy expenditure works. The way we are typically taught about how energy works, and I say that because this is how I used to teach it myself and how I learned it coming up through school, is that the number of calories you burn every day is just a simple function of how big you are and how active you are. And so you can't change how big you are very easily, but you can change how active you are. So in the simple additive model, the more and more active you are, the more your calories per day go up, up, up. And so if you're more active, you burn more calories. If you're less active, you burn fewer calories over the course of the day. It's a very simple one-to-one relationship. What we're finding, and this is something that we hadn't expected, but this is born from the data of measuring energy expenditures in different populations and across different kinds of lifestyles, is that it doesn't seem to work that way at all. Instead, what we find when we measure energy expenditure across different populations, different lifestyles, is that people who are very active burn the same number of calories every day as people who are not very active. And so there doesn't seem to be any relationship at all between how active a person is and how many calories they burn every day. We call that a constrained total energy expenditure model. Let's imagine that you're the laziest couch potato that one could imagine, and you go from that lifestyle to a more active lifestyle. You might see initially some increases in energy expenditure. But then very quickly, what you'll see is that the total number of calories that your body can burn will plateau. And so as you get more and more and more active, you won't see any increases in the total calories that you burn every day, because instead, your body compensates for that extra energy expenditure that you spent on activity as you get more active. It's compensated by spending less energy elsewhere. One thing we've known for a long time, over a century now, going back to the early days of physiological research in metabolism, our bodies spend almost two-thirds of their energy every day on things that are not physical activity. Even active people spend most of their calories on things like immune function, keeping our tissues repaired and in shape, keeping our organs running. And what we think is happening is as you get more and more active, your body turns the energy expenditure on those activities down a bit and makes room for more physical activities. So that the bottom line is that you don't spend more calories every day, even as as you get more and more active. And one thing I want to add to that is that I'm not saying that if I run a marathon today and I don't tomorrow, that the energy expenditures are the same. Mm-hmm. The, the adaptation doesn't happen that quickly. Nor am I saying that if you start an exercise program tomorrow, that you won't see some increases in energy expenditure for a while while your body adjusts. What I'm saying is when we look at habitual levels of physical activity, that's where we see the lack of correspondence between activity and expenditure, because after the body gets a chance to adjust, we see everything evening out. 
I know one of the interesting ideas that you mentioned in one of your papers is that the range of energy compensation may correspond with the range of energy expenditure that typified humans during our evolution. While we're on the subject of energy compensation, what do you think about the idea that energy compensation may be lower in people who have lots of body fat? Yeah, well, so this raises the question of how does it work and why does it work the way it seems to work. And so the evolutionary logic, we think, to why the body would compensate at all. Imagine a human or imagine any animal, because this happens in other species too, not just humans. Imagine any organism in the wild where resources are limited. Energy compensation allows you to reduce the impact of increased activity on how many calories you need every day. At the same time, by burning more calories than you absolutely need to as things get good, you can spend those extra calories during the plush times on things like reproductive effort and immune effort, things that might have gotten cut out when you were super active. So we think that's the evolutionary logic. To apply that to the question of body fat, the signals that say, hey, things are stressful, energy is limited, perhaps we should compensate by turning other activities down, that might be a weaker signal in someone who's got more body fat because your body fat is basically a reserve fuel tank. And so if you've got a lot of reserve fuel on board, you might be less responsive to these energy stress mediated responses. And staying with the subject of adiposity, there's large variation between people and how they respond to changes in energy availability that result in an energy surplus or a deficit. So for example, when they suddenly increase their caloric intakes, some people gain lots of fat while others gain none. Do you have any thoughts on how energy availability might interact with physical activity energy expenditure? Well, it's tough. These are things that we're still trying to figure out. We know that there's individual variation, of course, but people are, in general are quite good at matching their expenditure to their intake. Some really nice work by Leibel and Rosenbaum in the 90s showed that if you make people overeat, their metabolic rates will actually go up in response to that increased intake. The effect is it burns off the extra intake. If you reduce people's intake, their energy expenditures go down. So our bodies do a good job of matching our expenditure to our intake. Now, when we see people who are increasing their food intake and they're turning that into fat, instead of just burning it off the extra. That's saying that for some reason in those folks, it's not quite as well matched. And why that would be, how that works, these are questions we're still trying to untangle. So your research implies that a person's energy intake is the main driver of his or her body mass. Can you touch on what you think the most important implications of your model are for curbing overweight and obesity? Yeah. So I think our work adds to what people have been showing in studies going back decades, which is that if you want to manage your weight, the most effective way to do that is to manage calorie intake. And if you try to manage weight by focusing on energy expenditure, even though, and I'll just say this right off the bat, exercise is fantastic and we also do more of it. So we're not saying anything about exercise being not great for you. It is. But if you focus on exercise as your primary way of managing weight, you're going to have less effective results because your energy expenditure is stuck. That's what the energy constraint model shows. That's what the data shows. That it's really hard to budge someone's energy expenditures. The body compensates so effectively. And so it's much easier to get people to overeat or to watch their diet and try to be in negative energy balance for a while. So on a societal level, if you want to curb obesity, we should focus on diet and energy intake. Mm -hmm. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. Given that many adults gain weight over time, during the holidays especially, I've always thought that resistance training that's programmed to increase fat-free mass is one of the best antidotes to avoiding unwanted fat gain. Basically, resistance training may help direct any surplus energy to fat-free mass instead of fat 
mass and your work and that of others shows that fat free mass is the main determinant of total energy expenditure so mm-hmm. in this way i suppose that unlike some forms of exercise regular resistance training indeed affects total energy expenditure across longer periods do you have any thoughts on this in the context of your model well, I don't disagree. I think if you can keep your fat-free mass up, that's going to be basically the only sustainable way to keep your total energy expenditure up. I think any exercise is good exercise. I'm not partisan to any particular kind. Mm-hmm. And so I think you and I are actually on the same page. I would say that I think the big metabolic effects you get in terms of tamping other physiological activity down, I think is one of the big benefits of exercise. Things like reduced inflammation, for example. My prediction is that you'll get the biggest effect on those based purely on calories calorie workload. However many calories you burn, that's going to be your metric of how well you're tamping down inflammation, for example. That's my prediction. I don't know if that's true yet, but we're trying to figure that out. And if that's true, then it won't matter how you get your calories burned in exercise, but you're going to want to make sure that your workload is sufficient to see those kinds of effects. So you've touched on this a couple of times now. Can you speak about how physical activity might influence energy allocation and just highlight the distinction between essential and non-essential processes? Yeah, so this is one of the things we're really excited about with this constrained model and the data that seem to suggest it. You look at people who are very active and people who are not, they're burning the same number of calories. Well, physical activity never becomes free. In fact, if you look at people who are really trained and people who aren't, their energy costs of walking and running, for example, are about the same. So what's happening as your body adjusts and compensates to keep total energy expenditure the same with more activity isn't that the activity is getting cheaper. It's that you're taking energy away from some other tasks. We could have a good think about what all those different tasks are. But when we look across the body, what we find is that we do see this reduction in basically everything we've looked at in terms of energy expenditure on different physiological tasks. So, for example, if you look at the immune system, we see that people who exercise regularly have lower background levels of inflammation. Inflammation, it's a, it's a bad thing. Chronic inflammation, it's a necessary response to infection, but high levels of immune function are bad for you. But chronic exercisers have lower levels of inflammation. People who exercise all the time, are really physically active, have lower levels of reproductive hormones, for example. So testosterone is lower in men who exercise all the time. Estrogen is lower in women who exercise all the time. So reproductive system is being turned down a bit as people exercise more and more. Your stress response, looking at cortisol responses or your fight or flight response, that that seems to get suppressed a bit in chronic exercises, which sounds like a bad thing. But people who are exercising all the time, they have a lower stress response. And so when we look at all this in some, our bodies are cutting out the non-essential stuff. Inflammation is important sometimes, but you don't want it up all the time. You need some levels of reproductive hormones for reproduction to work, but you don't need sky high levels. And so what seems to be happening as people exercise regularly is it cuts out that non-essential stuff and makes us a lot healthier. Now you take it too far and eventually there's no room to cut out any more non-essential stuff and you start cutting into the essential stuff. And we actually do see that. So if you look at athletes who are training with enormous workloads, they often actually have health issues related to overtraining. We call it overtraining syndrome. So women, for example, will stop ovarian cycling and men and women athletes at that elite level can have difficulties recovering from colds and actually get more you know, mm. susceptible to colds, that kind of thing. And we think that's because you cut out all the non-essential stuff and you are asking to cut out even more and the only thing that's left to cut out is stuff that actually you'd rather have. You mentioned Rudy Leibel earlier, and obviously he's famous for his work on leptin. When I was thinking about your work, the various theories that have been put forward to explain how our bodies regulate how fat we are came to mind. 
One example of which is Kennedy's LiPo-STAT model. Kennedy's model, for example, focused on certain structures such as parts of the hypothalamus. Do you have any thoughts on whether some corollary exists for energy invested in physical activity and which structures might be involved? And might it be that high levels of physical activity affect the energy cost of muscle contraction, perhaps through effects on factors such as skeletal muscle, myosin heavy chain composition? There's a guy named Rollins who actually had this activity stat model to harken back to the 90s and think about the historical background for this. Rollins' idea was that I think like you're suggesting that somehow the body wants to maintain a certain level of physical activity and he didn't have a mechanism in mind, but presumably it'd be a kind of neurological mechanism that would keep people at a certain level of physical activity. And so, for example, if you didn't exercise, maybe you'd fidget a bit more or do some other non-exercise activity just to keep yourself moving. There's not a lot of great evidence for that, I have to say. That idea was taken up by a guy named Jim Levine. And if you've heard of this concept of NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, Jim Levine's idea, picking up on Rowland's idea, was that if people don't exercise, they'll do things like fidget and burn off those extra calories with their muscles some other way. And conversely, if people start exercising, then they'll cut out that other stuff and keep activity at a certain level. Those ideas were generated in the late 90s and early 2000s before we had good accelerometry measurements. Mm -hmm. um, now that we've got really good measures from accelerometry, these little movement devices, the step counters in your smartphone and your Fitbit and that kind of thing, we've got a much better picture of just how physically active people are every day. If you get people exercising, it turns out, there's not a lot of evidence that they cut out other stuff that they're doing in terms of physical activity during the day. So the compensation might be partly due to changes in activity outside of exercise, but it doesn't seem to explain all of it. It seems to be really variable. So that suggests that there's no strong mechanism that wants to keep your exercise levels constant, which is a long way of answering part of your question. What was the other bit about the myosin heavy chains? Just the idea that myosin heavy chain composition might influence the energy costs of muscular work. So uh, yeah. if, for example, you have high levels of activity, then that might cause a transition, some of those isoforms towards slower isoforms, and that might thereby reduce the cost of muscular work, which could potentially explain why the energy cost of physical activity is decreasing over time. Yeah, okay. You wouldn't change how active you are, but you would change how much it costs. Again, there's not a lot of great evidence for that. This could be very muscle specific. If you look at someone who's a power lifter versus someone who's an endurance athlete, you're going to see your biggest potential for differences there. I don't know that anybody's looked at that in an expansive way. But what I do know is that when we look at people who are really physically active, so I'll give you an example of this. We work with hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania. And these guys, the name of the population is the Hadza. They're a traditional hunting and gathering population in northern Tanzania. They're extremely physically active. They get about as much physical activity in a day as most Americans get in a week. They walk miles and miles a day. Men typically hunt wild game. Women typically are going after wild plant foods. And they are the first population that we studied that suggested that this constrained energy model should be true. Even though they're extraordinarily physically active, they burn the same number of calories every day as folks in the West. Okay. Part of our work there was measuring the energy cost of walking for these guys. So we brought out a portable respirometry system that measured carbon dioxide production and oxygen consumption while you're out walking. We cleared out a level track around their camp. These guys live in grass houses in the middle of the savanna. Cleared out a big walking track. Me and Dave Reichland and Brian Wood, when we were out there doing this work, we measured the energy cost of walking. And what we found, even though these guys walk so much more than we do in the West, and even though they seem to clearly show this energy compensation. Their energy costs of walking were the same as you and me. And that actually fits with what we've seen with endurance training studies in other labs. 
people who train a lot to either walk or run more and more and more, their endurance goes up, they're able to walk or run faster and longer, but they don't really change the energy cost of walking or running per kilometer. And so are there gonna be muscle changes in response to training? Absolutely. Will some of these affect economy? Probably. Is it a big enough effect that we can explain energy compensation that way? I don't think so. And that's because when we've tried to measure energy efficiencies of walking or running to the main physical activities that these groups are doing, we don't see that they're more economical at it. Hmm. Staying with pre-industrial people, your review of hunter-gatherers as models in public health is superb. And I'm keen to bring to light some of the points that you make in it. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions, if that sounds good. I'll try to give short answers, but I can't promise. (laughs) I've paid to be verbose. I've been rewarded for it, so I'll do what I can. Cool. There's, of course, remarkable diversity between the diets of different pre-industrial people. But do these people generally consume low-carbohydrate diets? No. (laughs) (laughs) There's an incredible amount of diversity, as you say. A lot of these groups eat more carbohydrates as a percentage of their total calories than Americans or Europeans. I know you mentioned that 16 to 20% of Hadza energy intake is from honey and bee larvae. That's right. Have you ever found that ketones are present in the urine of the Hadza? Never. We haven't checked enough yet. We need to do more. But in the couple dozen that we've looked at, we haven't ever seen the ketones, no. Can you give us some idea of how much fiber pre-industrial people consume? Ah, good question. Now I'm trying to remember that table from our paper. 100 grams a day? You say that as if you're expecting me to correct you. Don't worry, I won't. That sounds about right, but it's a lot of fiber. As I recall, the US diet is about 20 grams of fiber a day, and so it's something like five times more, and, mm. and I think that's probably a good rule of thumb. Next question. Pre-industrial people at higher latitudes tend to have lower intakes of plant foods than people near the equator. Do you think that latitude's something we should consider when personalizing nutrition? No, not really. So you're right. People who live at extremely high northern latitudes don't eat many plants because, surprise, surprise, not many plants grow at really high latitudes. However, we have to unpack why we expect that that would have anything to do with how we ought to eat today. The idea there would be that somehow people who live in the northern latitudes today are descendants of hunter-gatherer populations who live in northern climates recently that we have these ethnographic data for. In most cases, that's not true. So, for example, my family a few generations ago lived in Germany, but the Western Europeans came from, as far as we can tell, the Eurasian steppe and farther south, and that's only been a few thousand years. It's hardly any time at all for evolution to have happened. The idea that somehow, if you're Northern European, that you've come from the Arctic, just doesn't match at all with how we know, in fact, human population migration is gone. I thought about this a little bit in the context of changes in light-dark cycles, and work Mm -hmm. by people like Ken Wright has shown that our circadian systems can quickly adjust the change in the photo period, meaning that melatonin synthesis and hence the biological Mm -hmm. night times longer in the winter, and since Mm -hmm. melatonin seems to worsen oral glucose tolerance, to me this implies that it makes sense to compress the caloric period in the winter, by which I primarily mean having an earlier dinner. But interesting to hear about diet quality too. Next question. Hunter-gatherers are lean and generally in excellent metabolic health. One Mm -hmm. thing that I've always told people looking to lose fat is to generally favor micronutrient-dense but macronutrient-sparse foods. How does the energy density of hunter-gatherer diets compare to ours, and do you think we should learn from any differences? Yeah, hunter-gatherers eat less energy-dense foods than folks do in the West. It's not a big difference, but it's probably enough to matter. It's probably about 10 to 20% fewer calories per gram. When you think about why they're less energy dense, it's because they're higher in fiber. And again, I think eating lots of fiber will fill you up. You'll eat less anyhow. 
and you get more nutrients if you're eating nutrient-dense foods. Of course, you could just eat cardboard. That won't help you. But if you eat nutrient-dense foods that are also high in fiber, I think that's a win-win. Okay, let's pivot back to physical activity. People have written about how humans are uniquely adept at persistence hunting, but how much running do pre-industrial people actually do? Depends on the people, but it's not true that they all run. For example, the Hadza don't run, the Chimani in Bolivia don't run, even the Tarahumara, the folks from Chaco Canyon in Mexico who famously run these enormously long races as part of their cultural traditions. They only run during those celebrations. They don't seem to run outside of that. And so it's absolutely true that humans are impressive endurance animals compared to any of the other primates, even compared to most other mammals. Mm-hmm. It's not true that we universally are all runners in terms of pre-industrial human cultures. That's what I have to say about that. One thing that I found interesting in one of your papers, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but your data show that the Hudson men walk about twice as far as the women, but have lower levels of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity. Yeah. What explains that? Well, the moderate vigorous physical activity is based on either accelerometry or heart rates, and the mileage, of course, is based on GPS measurements. So that's why they're not one to one. But the reason that you could have such a big difference is that women do all sorts of work that doesn't involve walking. So women are digging up wild tubers for hours a day. That's a lot of heavy work. They are wrestling kids, <laughs> doing all sorts of physical stuff that doesn't mean they're covering ground. And that's the short answer. That's why. Next question. There's some evidence that metrics such as cardiorespiratory fitness and some pre-industrial people have changed across time. How much do you think the biology and behaviors of pre-industrial people have changed in recent years? And does this affect their utility as models of how our ancestors lived? Yeah, that's a great question. The short answer is we don't really know. It's Mm. hard to know how different things have become for these populations because the methods available 100 years ago when these first measurements were being taken aren't the same methods that we have available now. Two things. I'm sure that they've changed because all populations change all the time. And that gets to this point that none of the populations today or any of them in the past are the model, capital letters, that we should all be striving to emulate. All these populations are just examples of what it can be like to be a hunter-gatherer or be a subsistence farmer. And just like American culture has changed, so is theirs over decades or centuries or thousands of years. Now, does that affect their utility? I don't think so, because the common elements that they're holding on to that don't change are these really high levels of physical activity, the whole food, natural food diets, and the fact that in terms of public health, value of this kind of work. Even today, we can go to camp and we'd find they have excellent cardiometabolic health. Whatever the changes have happened over the last 10 years or 100 years, we should still wish that we had cardiometabolic health as good as they do. So I don't think it changes the value of it, but I think what it says is be careful about these romantic ideas mm-hmm. about how any one population is the population that we should all emulate. You're wrong from the start if you go that way. Other than physical activity, diet and sleep, which things about hunter-gatherers do you think the rest of us might learn from these people? It's notable that they live their lives outside. They are surrounded by friends and family their whole lives. There's almost no inequality because nobody has anything. (laughs) Um, That's not entirely true. They've got their possessions, but it's not much. Mm -hmm. They're not materialistic in the way that we seem to be in the West. I think we could learn from that. Try to simplify things a bit and get outside, get some fresh air, and don't lose track of your friends and family. We know from lots of work looking at social stress and how that affects health that those things are important. So groups like the Hods are just reminders of that. I can enjoy my fresh central London air. Looking out my windows at trees and feeling pretty smug. So the numbers of pre-industrial people, including hunter-gatherers, is 
decreasing. Do you foresee a time in the near future in which there aren't any left? Yeah, I'm really terrified of that, actually. I think that would be a tragedy. Cultural loss is happening all over the globe. Mm. It's not just hunter-gatherer groups. It's other politically not powerful groups. And it's a tragedy, you know? Every time we lose a culture, every time a culture gets assimilated and integrated into some other group and lost, it's a loss for us all to learn from them and figure out other ways we could do things. So, yeah, I do foresee that. I hope it's not soon. I hope somehow we're able to keep it going indefinitely. But, yeah, it worries me all the time. Are there people actively looking to prevent that? Yeah. So people I work with, Brian Wood, for example, and I have tried to help the Hadza. There's other groups on the ground in Tanzania. And the Tanzanian government, I should say, has stepped up and tried to help keep their culture vibrant. The main thing for them is keeping lands that they're still able to hunt and gather on. It's essential. And they've been trying to protect those. So that's great. People try to do responsible tourism with groups like the Hadza. And so I try to encourage that. And not just them, but other groups too, anthropologists and also other NGOs and even some governments, depending on the situation have stepped up and tried to help. But you know, globalization is a powerful force. Economics is a powerful force. It seems like the deck's stacked against it, I have to say. Okay. Penultimate question. What's the one thing that you hope people take away from your research? Well, I think in terms of public health, what I hope they take away is that diet and exercise are two different tools with two different jobs. I think we often conflate the two. You can think we can trade one for the other. It doesn't work like that. You've got to watch your diet. That's going to help you manage your weight. You've also got to exercise. That's going to help everything else. And that's, I think, the big public health lesson we can take away from this work. I like it. And I'd strongly recommend that our listeners check out your work. Where should they go online to find your contributions? Well, if you go to Google Scholar or to PubMed and search for my work, you'll find it. Go to my website at Duke, you'll find it. I'm working on a book. So hopefully soon enough, it'll be in every store in town. Cool. A popular science book. That's the idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm about halfway through writing it. So it's not right around the corner, but trying to condense a lot of this work into an easily digestible book for everyone to enjoy. I'm looking forward to that. Herman, I really admire the work you're doing and think you've contributed tremendously to your field. So keep up the great work and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I really had a good time. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.